Hello listeners, I just want to give a content warning before you go ahead and listen to this edition of the Vajrasati Yoga podcast. In the podcast, we're going to be discussing drug and alcohol abuse. So if this kind of content is usually triggering for you, then please consider giving this one a miss or put the usual necessary measures in place that help you feel safe when listening to this kind of content. Thank you. Welcome to the Vajrasati Yoga Podcast, Episode 5. This podcast was recorded remotely because of the coronavirus, so the sound quality might be a bit different as my guest and I got under our respective duvets in bed to emulate the conditions of a recording studio. Hopefully, it'll be an enjoyable listen. I'm interviewing Zoe Witchell, who is my fellow student from the Vajrasati teacher training course and, of course, now is a teacher. Zoe is also a dear friend of mine and I've always respected how honest she is about being an addict in recovery and also her sense of humour and just frankness and openness. I think that you will really enjoy hearing about Zoe's um, life and how she came to Vajrasati Yoga so enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Vajrasati Yoga Podcast, Zoe Witchell. Thank you for agreeing to be my guest on this um, episode, episode five of the Vajrasati Yoga Podcast. Um, Zoe Witchell, yeah, it's a pleasure. Zoe, you are a qualified Vajrasati Yoga teacher. You um, graduated in the same year as me, which was 2017, I believe. Is that right? It was. Oh my gosh. I think it is. Quite. Wow. 2017 or 2018. Anyway, a couple of <laughs> few years. Um, Before Corona is all I, could, all I know. BC, that's it. BC, yeah. And Zoe, we were just talking before we hit record about how huge a topic addiction is and, you know, wary to call it. You know, this podcast is all about addiction. So just for our own sense of giving it some context. Like, let's just talk about now about what, we, what we're going to talk about today in terms of what you mean, what I mean by addiction. Do you want to just give a bit of background to when you talk about addiction, what do you mean? Well, when I talk about addiction, obviously everything that I will be talking about will come from my, my own experience, my own, you know, sort of strength and hope from it. But my notion of addiction which is quite a fellowship notion is um, anything, whether it's a behavior or a substance that it, it costs you more than money, you know, that, it, that because that kind you know, whether if it's booze and it's costing you more than what you're paying for in the office, you know, if it's costing you arguments or relationships or peace of mind or your Liberty, obviously you can, you can go on ad infinitum. Um, if it's just, even if it's just on a internal kind of, you're doing something and it costs you your, you know, you have guilt and shame around it, even if it's privately, even if outwardly everything looks pretty rosy to somebody else. So that's my kind of notion of what, when things goes from some, maybe a heavy use to an addiction, to an addictive use of a substance or behavior. Um, but I don't adhere, although it got me into recovery, on this notion that addiction is a disease. 
I think if you split the word and you look at it, which you do often in you know, fellowship meetings as dis-ease, I have, you know, I am uneasy with myself. Yes, so splitting the word disease, but I don't inherently believe that as I look at a fellow addict that they have a disease. I think that um, addiction is born from one of several stems and it, um, it causes a, 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 a almost almost to the well actually to the point sometimes of death the inability to sit with oneself sorry about the things falling off my desk <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um the inability, again, the inability to sit with oneself to be in one's skin to be to be who to endure your feelings your thoughts um your behaviors to be just to be it's, it's impossible to be when you're an addict and you're constantly on the strive to change the way you feel by one or many different actions or substances or behaviours. And, um, and it makes for a really terrifying and really split existence. But I don't think it comes from being born with a disease. I think it comes from either... Um, abuse, neglect, generational trauma, um, gestational trauma, like when you're in utero, if you're if the person that was carrying your mother, even if you don't then grow up with your mother, is under huge amounts of stress or pressure, it can um, translate through in utero and you can be born into that situation having already gestated nine months of you know that kind of extreme anxiety and or and or abuse and or whatever else was going on for the mother or the you know the bio mother at the time, um, and I think it can come from you know it can come off from a one-off event you know one-off traumatic event. Can I um, ask what was what was it for you, Zol? What was it for me? For me, um, it took a long time for me to get my head ran when I went into recovery, even though I was trying to change the way I felt. I really didn't buy into that. I bought into the fact that, yeah, of course we all want to have fun, even though it way gone by past fun. For me, it was um, abandonment. I, I, I wasn't abandoned per se by either of my parents, but the care, there was, there was a, um, a neglect of duty. There was... Um, an abandonment of of parenting so the combination of abandonment and rejection just sort of stuck itself in that hideous kind of helix formation and and then it became intolerable to be so if it when you when you have experiences of abandonment or neglect or rejection when you're younger the younger before you're seven you can only really make that your own fault. It's far too frightening. You don't have the emotional intelligence or the ability to, but it cannot possibly be the fault of another. <clears throat> and I use the word fault, not even in necessarily a condemning way. You know, people often experience the feelings of abandonment and neglect from a parent who just did the best they could, mm. but didn't quite have the tools to manage. You know, obviously there's a, there's a spectrum from severe to moderate, but it, but the experience can feel the same to the younger one. So mine was through that. So everything became about me. If I was better, if I was different, I'm not good enough. 
I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm unlovable. So obviously with that backdrop, <coughs> excuse me, um, with that backdrop, one is going to change, want to change who they are and how they feel because it's an intolerable place to be. Mm. Wow, that's, that's really... Um powerful thing to think about how young that it can can start mm. from and yeah and in relation to just what you said earlier about you know this inability to simply be and there's loads of things that I could that I would like to pick up on there but just going back to that inability to simply be what was it like for you to come to yoga like can you tell me like your first experience of like doing a yoga class where the point is sometimes to simply be is that not like absolutely the antithesis of what you want when you have an addiction or like what you're craving um, do you know what i mean like it, it seems like that would be impossible if you don't want to simply yeah be. it is agony and if i was to if my first experience of yoga had been a vajrasati class you wouldn't have seen me back in those doors absolutely no way why is that because it's about presence, presence of mind, you know, you're, you're bringing into unison your breath and your body. I mean, you know, I wake up with unbridled alcoholism or addiction in my, and so I wake up and I'm in two different parts. My body and my breath aren't connected, which is why this experience of yoga is so important because I can bring myself to one. So to have come directly onto a Vajrasati style mat mm -hmm. and to have been able just to have even stood in Tadasana, just even to have stood with people in that sort of, because it's a very connected community. No way. Who, who am I? Like, who would I be? I, my experience of yoga began and it was probably, probably only ever going to begin with Bikram. You know, I was there. I was not there for spiritual connection. No. But were you there for? I was, I was there to change the way I feel, felt through extreme temperature and um, bending my body into shapes that it had never been bent into. You know, I'd had, um, I was a cocaine addict, or I am a cocaine addict, but with 10 years clean. So without cocaine or booze or all the other drugs, but they were my two big things, and without men, um, I was left with really very little to change the way I felt. And Bikram um, was the ideal other scenario because I used to come out of there totally rinsed. Mm. And I loved it. I liked watching the sweat drip from my groin onto the thing, thinking you're rinsing yourself out here. That I didn't know my name, that I wondered whether I was going to pass out. That, you know, I knew we weren't allowed to leave because the discipline was, you know, that really sort of really regimey. Mm. And I loved it. It's interesting. And I loved it as well, like I did with drinking drugs in the end. I loved and I, I needed it. I would have to go every single day. Mm. And I hated it in some ways, lots of ways. It's interesting that feeling of wanting to get that feeling of not knowing your name or disappearing or ringing yourself out because we do talk about that in, the, in, in our Vajrasati teacher training and in classes about disappearing and about, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it's a lot more of um, a slow process, I think, in the Vajrasati sense mm -hmm. of it being and a gentleness. But I came, 
I started into yoga from Bikram as well. And I know that feeling of um, just, yeah, just wanting to be wrung out. And it is, there are parallels of, um, of substance use of alcohol and drugs of getting to that, getting to that place of disappearing. Whereas like yoga can be very much that aspect Mm. of enlightenment or like which I don't think any of us well personally speaking don't think I'm going to achieve that in my in my lifetime oh yeah I touch it all the time yeah 10 times a day but it's um Jim has said before in a class that um Jim Taran I just say yoga teacher about in um in classes we have to be aware and um realistic that a lot of people come to yoga classes because they possibly think there's something like you know in inverted commas wrong with them and they're looking to heal or they're looking to change the way they feel they're looking to change or alter the state that they're in so can you tell me a little bit more about how through your like would you had you stopped using drugs and alcohol when you started yoga or was it were they overlapping No, they didn't overlap. I came out of rehab and I relapsed within a couple of months and I relapsed continuously for a year. And then during that year, but I never, during the the pockets of sobriety I had in that year, I began my journey with Bikram. And, And then, so yes, there was a kind of Venn diagram, if you look at it, there was the Bikram, there was... <clears throat> drink and drugs. I don't know whether I picked, I did, I did have one use up, but, and in between those bits, I would go and, you know, change the way I feel with, with, with Bikram. But when I did start my journey of continuous sobriety, which was almost a year to the date that I'd gone into rehab, then um, I, that's when I went mad for the Bikram mad for it to the point where I would put anything aside relationship I mean anything to make sure that I would get that so it it was a fix it was a use arguably of course it was much safer and you know and ultimately began this journey which I'm so delighted I'm on Mm. and you know you you talked about the you know you can disappear very quickly or ring yourself out squeeze yourself to a nothingness in Bikram but you know when you're looking for that place of absorption or when you're moving away from your will and coming via compassion by those compassionate channels but experiencing yourself in from a non-physical form you know experiencing yourself within all the subtle realms that we we you we can get those delicious moments in vajrasati you know Mm. i don't know whether i would you know I, i well i do know i would never have been able to have got the subtlety of that from the beginning because everything was so sharp everything needs to be sharp because i as much as I wanted to change the way I feel, ultimately what I did was from years and years of drug abuse and alcoholism, I also completely, I didn't want to feel, you know, it's that kind of dichotomy. I, I'm not saying that I don't think that the Vajrasati classes are strong and I, and it, because I do, and I think that you could go there, you know, either freshly in recovery or still using, providing obviously you weren't using actually in the, on the day or in the class. And I think you could have an, a really big experience. You know, I do believe that. Um, but, you know, because people use and feel and, and are looking for different escapisms and different ways. But I, I, 
I wasn't looking for a spiritual out. Mm. No, I wasn't looking for that. I wasn't looking. I was, I was looking to physically um, manipulate my way into something different. So I would, so it, it, almost like an extortion of self for that Vajrasati, obviously that would go against the grain of what Vajrasati does. You know, you're looking for an experience within, you know, you're looking for um, an experience of, of your edges, but with the softness and the, and the movement and the, and the strength and the vulnerability. No, I, I was looking to, I wanted to be stretched out. You know, that was what I wanted. Mm. But that's, that was, that's my experience, you know. And Zoe, what? I, I didn't hear yeah, go on. No, I was just going to say about this, but you know, the spiritual aspect, you know, I wasn't looking to become some kind of guru, which I know some people can come in and think, okay, I'm going to do yoga. That's what, that's what they all do. That's what the Russell brands do. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. I had, I had no interest. I didn't even have that scope. Mm. Just wasn't, I just wasn't that even open-minded to even trying to have a spiritual bypass and do it on the mat, you know. Just, so where did it move? When did it move away from Bikram into something else? And what was it that moved you away from Bikram? And was it, from Bikram to Vajrasati, or were there other types of yoga? Yes. Um, I think I became very quick, well, three years, three years of excessive practice. Um, th there's a saying in AA, or, or in any fellowship, which is about the road gets narrower. And what they mean by that is the longer that your recovery is, things don't work anymore. So you... It's not about the using or the drinking, but it's just like, am I doing, it would be like somebody that drank heavily, you know, booze, and then all of a sudden had the same behaviors, but was drinking no alcohol beer, or somebody that put down, you know, wanted to lead, lead an honest life and an honest program, which is what AA is about, really sort of looking at the wreckage of your past and behaving differently, but you're constantly bitching behind someone's back. And it's just like, that just doesn't rub that doesn't rub with the authentic self. So I got to that point with Bikram. It's like, hang on, what's happening here? I put everything aside for this. I don't enjoy it. I don't like it. There's a sense of humor. I felt hum there was a few teachers that I would, was drawn to that had a kind of humiliating edge to it. Um, and I was getting nothing from it, except this kind of mangled feeling. Well, I might as well go out and use. I mean, I might as well not, but you know, that's what happened with drinking drugs. Like I wasn't getting any freedom from myself. I just was mangled immediately. And so from that, and then I, I suddenly thought, what am I doing? And then at that, that time, so this is 10 years ago, other yoga studios, it became more visible, which was lucky for me. And then I just, where did mean, I go? I mean like yoga in the mainstream became more visible? Yeah, like there was more on the high street. It was a bit more, you know, and maybe it's that thing that when you start doing something, your eyes are open to it. So you see it everywhere, you know, maybe it had been there around for some time. But I think that it has really sort of like opened up mm. in the last 10 years, certainly in the last few. And so this had all started about 10, seven, 10 years ago, 10 years I started the Bikram. And then, but I was still on the question. And then I, I was introduced to somebody to a teacher, a Kundalini teacher, who is still a huge influence in my life. And Kundalini is a huge practice of mine as well. And it worked on a, 
a much more empowering, beautiful, hormonal, physical, spiritual, mental level, all of it, which is Kundalini yoga, which I'm still really, really keen on massively. Mm. And then from knowing that I could get what I was actually really searching for, which is an experience of myself, another experience of self, rather than these two real polarities of either finding impossible to sit with myself but sober or mangled on the mat in Bikram, you know, that I could subtly bring them in and begin to experience myself as a whole, whilst changing the way I feel through a technology that worked. So in came Kundalini and at the same time it opened up the door like, oh my God, that yoga is completely different to this. You know, before they were just names on a timetable, Hatha, Vinyasa Flow. It's like, well, what the fuck does that mean? I had no idea. I would just roar up to one that was like 10.30 on a Sunday if that's what suited me. And then, and then my eyes really opened. And, I, and then, I, I, you know, I am a real, really regular practitioner. practitioner. But, I, you know, I, I did a lot of Jiva Mukti and I still heart Jiva Mukti. But again, I'm not into putting, you know, I, obviously I'm 10 years older than when I first started as well. But that said, that doesn't actually determine what yogas you can or can't do. But I, my body and my mind do not respect, respond now to being put through some kind of really rigorous practice. It just doesn't. Mm. You know, I'm not looking for that. I'm not looking for that edge. I, you know, I'm, I, I want to be softer. I'm, I'm looking for kindness. I'm looking for compassion. I'm looking for neutrality. I'm looking for my ability to tolerate who and what I am on and off the mat, even those darker times. I'm not looking to change the way I feel constantly to something other. I'm looking for experiencing and opening up how I am, when I am, as who I am. You know, a growth, a kind of maturity, I suppose. Um, and then I, I, I knew I wanted to do, I, I had other family complications with one of my sons. So a lot of my life was largely on hold because of that too and yoga was something that I could slide in you know for an hour an hour and a half three or four times a week at a studio not on zoom at this point mm. so it was a, it was a, it worked as respite too and then I thought you know what I want to do a training and then I stumbled across well I was already in connection with yoga point and Vachasin said to me I, I was gonna I can't even remember who or what I was going to sign up to I, I don't wouldn't have to I still know I wouldn't have done much research about it. It would have been something that kind of suited, but it would have been try yoga. It would have been something really, you know, fine, no disrespect, but it would have been like, yeah, that'll do. I'm divorced now so I can do alternate weekends or whatever the vibe was. And then Vajasin said to me, who I'd practiced with, you know, a lot and certainly at his studio a lot. um, I've got this mate called Jim and he's starting up in a few weeks in, you know, a local London studio. Why don't you go? And I went and I, and I felt this difference. I, I went to, um yoga arch as it was then called to this like lovely little sort of almost in the ivy studio <laughs> and um and i was nervous because it's like oh my god they want a personal statement and all this nonsense because i'd looked online about what you would need to do to get onto the course oh they won't want me all that kind of really low self-esteem nonsense you know no they just want to get a flavor of you <laughs> it's not about getting on the podium girl but you know i'm still in that place of less than and I did this class with Jim whom I'd not met who knew I was coming because Pachasin had texted him up to say I've got a possibility en route and it was like oh 
that's interesting. Mm. That's really interesting. And I didn't, I I, what, I, can, I can really remember it now, like thinking, God, that's really interesting. The vibe was different. The chat was different. I was interested. I, I, I didn't understand the majority of it. That's fine. I felt like that when I went into AA and I didn't understand the scrolls with the 12 steps on it, but it didn't put me off, you know, so. And there was just something about it. The, the delivery was beautiful. The delivery felt like he was speaking to my soul, even though I understood only half of it. And I loved that. I thought, wow, I could. And I drank it in. My goodness, I drank it in. And I, you know, in the beginning, you know, we didn't pummel through a vinyasa vinyasa flow. Obviously, we didn't. That's not the school style. Mm. So, of course, I'm a bit edgy in the beginning. Like, where's the big, where's the big bang? Where's the big moment? And my God, it came. But it kind of rolled and I felt it almost going up the chakras, like, you know, starting with my root and working with my neurosis and it kind of gathering. And it was like, my God, something is really happening and shifting. And it was, it was an extraordinary experience. And I kind of left and I thought, I know I'm doing this course, providing he has me, because, you know, obviously he won't want me, et cetera, et cetera, abandonment, rejection, blah, blah, blah. But it was really extraordinary. I, I, it was an extraordinary, I thought, wow, this is something that I've not experienced before. And, you know, I've, I've biked around many a studio and I've met many a lovely teacher. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I really have met lots of lovely teachers and I've had. But this was an experience that I wanted to learn from and develop. Mm. And, and at the time I was toying between the tri-yoga and I was toying between a kundalini, but a, a kind of quite, um, a, a kundalini not with uh, Carolyn Cowan, who is my teacher. So uh, a bit too kind of closed off rather than a global experience of kundalini or the Vajrasati. And I signed up for the Vajrasati. Wow. And I do not regret it. <laughs> yeah, um, thank goodness you did. Thank goodness you did. It's... Um... <laughs> been brilliant to have you as a fellow student throughout the, yeah. the training and um, I just wanted to ask Zoe some questions about as a teacher in a class that we're not ever really going to know possibly unless you know the students well enough um, is there anything glaringly obvious that as teachers we we could or could not be doing differently in case we do have somebody in the room that has um, gone through substance abuse or is an addict, is there, are there any sort of tips and tricks for the trade that you would be like, I wish yoga teachers knew this? I think, I think yes, there is. And without sort of making it really evident that you knew somebody's status or somebody's history within the room, so you kept it not that, not that anybody would be intentionally shame-basing, but, you know, like that you would keep it really open and free. So the language is very important and feel and to make it feel very inclusive. But you can really work through posture and breath, obviously, to change the way you feel. So you could make it more generalised, like, to, you know, 
if, if you, you know, if you could talk in a general way about anxiety or loneliness or things that we can experience as human beings rather than the addict, which the addict will know they feel in abundance, it will include them into the room without separating out anybody else that's not an addict, because we've all got, you know, we all suffer from the human condition. And, you know, you can talk through breath, you know, you can talk through a breath or a stretch that opens up certain things that releases hormones that that can release you know dopamine or serotonin or a stretch that can stretch the heart space release the resentments from the shoulders if you have a you know if you are literate in the 12 steps as in you know the language that is used there obviously you could drop some of those words in that again doesn't alienate the rest of the class from the potential person with addiction issues but also can hold the person with addiction issues as in like i'm speaking your language you know to use the but word i would say that which is a word i was just gonna say i think most of us probably don't know that language of the 12 steps so what no and that's fair enough but talking as a teacher who has a background in addiction who knows that i would always bring in a language mm. that, that widens the 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 it broadens the base so the people i think many people come to yoga because something's lacking a spiritual lacking and, oh. and the addiction is thought of as a spiritual malady it's a hole in the soul that's kind of the broadness of and we're looking to fill that hole in the soul and change the way i feel so without alienating the addict from the non-addict within the room if you have um the ability to use some of the words that are familiar within 12 steps, then it can be really encompassing, you know, to use the word resentment, which doesn't alienate somebody who doesn't know the 12 steps, but includes more so. But also, you know, stretches around the shoulders and the heart. So you're like releasing the tensions from the past, from the moment that's come in. You know, we know, we talk about holding the world on our shoulders. So that can be something that can be globally used. Um, if you know about the chakras, you can work with trust and identity, which is the beginning. So when you're sitting on your mat for the first time, you can connect with the roots. So you're rooting yourself down, you know, because addicts will invariably have trust issues um, or perhaps have come from a place where they felt really unsafe from birth in utero even. So if you can connect them to their root, you know, we actually are created. As soon as the connection is made between sperm and egg, we start as an asshole. That's how we start, that's how we evolve. So it really is our very first point of contact. So if we can connect to the earth, which we know the earth is not gonna let us down, even in this pandemic, it's not letting us down. It just is asking some time to heal, mm. you know? So if you can connect to the earth so you can feel yourself in your skin, in your body and know you're okay. So you can work with different glands. You've got the thymus gland here, which is about disease and well-being so you can expand and you can bring into mind you know providing you don't think you've got anybody that's psychotic in your class i would be could be triggered by having their eyes closed this is what bring... i was going to ask because i've read a little bit and heard a little bit about this thing about closing the eyes or certain postures like for example supta baddha the very opening posture and for some people it might feel too much it might feel too open mm -hmm. so like not just for yeah. somebody that might have psychotic um mental health um yeah 
conditions but would you is it advisable to keep offering you know close the eyes or, or just let the eyes um what is it you say because I've been to your class and you do offer different things what is it that you say yeah I do I either work with the drishti point you know where you look to the point that has no attachment the, the point that has no beginning or end that you're looking through so it's beyond your external experience of self but attached to no nothing or no one that can trigger you or just bring your eyes half mass or if you feel comfortable to do so you can take the gaze within by closing your eyes but um if i was in a physical um meeting you know physical yoga class I would read the energies of the room and if there was somebody that was really struggling just to be present just to be if I wanted to if I still thought it was appropriate to do something more opening or something that really taps into the vulnerability like Supta Kanasana, when you've got your whole front of your body open the whole front of your temple open yeah. I would either offer an alternative or I wouldn't do it or I just wouldn't do it if I thought if there was any kind of dubious, like, mm, that could really trigger him or her into a bad place, no, I would leave it out. There's other postures that could do that or, you know, that I would use instead. I wouldn't want um, to upset the room, but I wouldn't want to put them in a fun vulnerable position. On Zoom, I constantly reiterate the to try and to inform the students sufficiently to take responsibility for themselves, whether we're doing breath work, you know, I will offer them a breath, I will offer them an alternative and tell them what, if they're feeling these things that they can break the breath, you know, that we're learning to explore ourselves, not, you know, that we had the luxury of not being watched by anybody, of not having that sort of where we can get or where I have been, that competitive nature of what the bird on the mat next door to me is doing, you know, like, <laughs> interested mm. and of course in zoom we do have that luxury but we the, the the verbal direction needs to constantly be reiterated that you have choice and that you have space and that we're not switching our egos off because they keep us alive but we're trying to put them into neutral because we're coming from a felt sense place rather than a thought of what it should look like how it, how it should be you know says who we're just guides I believe we're just guides, you know, and in this paradigm on Zoom, I mean, I, I have been lucky in touch with, I haven't had anybody triggered. And I do know how if people become really overwhelmed in the room, which again, I haven't had how to bring them down much more easily. But I just talk, even if we're moving from something like pigeon into a transitional Adhamukha when we're going from a yin, a surrendered yin position into a more yang, and even shifting of the blood pressure can, you know, and we're going into an inversion, I will still talk them through each time. If you feel dizzy, it doesn't feel comfortable, open your eyes, come down to Balasana. You know, how does it feel? Is it what you need? What is your body asking for? What, what are you feeling? Not what are you thinking, what are you feeling? Breathe your way through the posture. And, and continue reiterating it in different ways. So they have, so they've got like a reference book of like, actually, you know, they'll do what they'll do. And that's, you know, that's always going to be the case. It's interesting that um, feeling of reminding somebody to connect, like keep connecting to what is it your body needs? What is it? 
because for for somebody I, I know very little about addiction um and I've I've done a little bit of research leading up to our conversation today and one of the things that I read about was that when you're in that stage of of the addiction of wanting the substance or the drink or whatever it is that you're addicted to it's you're you're not even thinking I want it you're thinking I have to have it or I'll die so you don't know that you don't need it because you don't need it per se in terms of what's good for you but you need it because that is what every single cell in your body is telling you you need it's beyond willpower it's beyond anything it's sort of it's within almost your dna you have the feeling is you have to have it which is why when you're withdrawing from it and why when the addiction is more process rather than substance i uh, around people or love or sex you well, my experience of that is I felt that I was going to die if I didn't get it. But unlike the drink, I couldn't put down people because it was within me. It's an extraordinary, overwhelming, humbling experience. And it's vile. You know, it, it was vile. But the, the disconnect from yourself to your body and your actual needs is remarkable. I mean, it's like highways away. So talking through, you know, that kind of almost like a mantra, bringing it back to how you feel. What's your experience? You know, how are you feeling? What's, you know, and also my, one of the things that I say, I would say in every single class, you know, obviously talking about all the delicious different aspects of the prana that we have. And my, the most powerful one for me, beyond even life, is the fact that if you're really consciously breathing, even if it's that you're dedicating an hour to that on the mat, you're moving away from your mind crimes. You are in an experience of self that is not dictated by negative thought patterns, negative wiring, um, feelings of guilt and shame or thoughts of guilt and shame. You're in your feeling body. And the, the relationship is so vastly different and of course, you can, at any one point, you can bring yourself back into your head. I mean, we can do that much easier than we can take ourselves out of our head through the breath. But it, it governs us in a, um, the breath can overrule, my experience is the breath is the absolute governess, you know, it's the priestess of the whole physical being and can completely dictate how we feel, how we change, what we need, who we are. You know, because it's it's so rewarding and freeing and so madly underused. We've got this huge resource within us, yet most of us don't even know how to breathe. You know, it's so unconscious. Isn't that fabulous? You know, we're kept alive unconsciously. But isn't it? But, isn't it? Isn't it um, no, go on. But what? No, 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 no more. <laughs> I mean, not no more. I'm just off an air break. <laughs> yeah. I have to remind everybody listening that me and Zoe are really red faced from being under two really hot blankets in our respective homes to get the sound quality that we would normally get in Jim's recording studio. Oh God. Um, maybe it's also the heat of the yoga. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was just going to say the breath um, aspect as well. I just find it sometimes really mind blowing that that's, it's something so simple that, is so um, transformational and maybe it's a part of our conditioning of 
being in a capitalist world that it's like, nah, it can't be that because that's too easy to access. It must be something, I must need to access something more difficult to attain, more hardcore, more, you know, it's, I'm not the same as everybody else. I'm different. The breath is the thing that unites Mm -hmm. every single sentient being to, you know, to be able to be like, we're all, we're all the same in that way, but we all believe we're special and different in some way. Yeah. yeah. There's a grandiosity, even when you've got savagely low self-esteem. It can't possibly be the breath. Mm. And also, ultimately, we're really lazy. There's a training that comes with the breath, isn't there? You know, it's, it's so difficult to stay on point with the breath for even a second. You know, those that have tried meditation for days or weeks or months or years, you know, we've got monkey brains and we're off left right and center and we're used to this huge amount of kind of sensory input so when we're trying to kind of filter it through not to a place of nothing but to a place of being with the breath I mean in a way that's a withdrawal a withdrawal of the other senses Mm. it's really difficult it'd be much easier to buy something on Amazon I mean much select or buy I mean why wouldn't you (laughs) you know and we believe that we'll buy said thing and for that second we'll get that hit of, hit of dopamine like brilliant yeah, got that sure. we'll scroll through instagram get that like on facebook wicked validated but it's it's external hmm. whereas we have this really you know this resource within us the kind of the divine within that that for me manifests in the breath that is it is so soothing and delicious and the conversation you can have with the more sensitive side, you know, so you can actually be, you know, become that human being rather than doing that. You can respond rather than react that you, you know, there's just like a sort of powerful gracefulness in the breath that actually, if you come back to your breath in the most tricky of situations and just fall into breath, actually it's really difficult to, for the person that if if it's somebody that's on the attack to actually continue to do that because you're, coming back to your breath and that stillness mm. is really unpenetrable. It's a really powerful tool you have, let alone what you're doing to your insides, which is just like. <sighs> Was yoga the first time that you had ever had any um, conscious awareness of your breath? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. I mean, I, you know, and and so it evolves. I'm really at the beginning of the journey, but you know, when I did become conscious about breathing and breath and learning, you know, I realized how often I just held my breath, you know, that fear based response, you know, on a daily basis. It's like, yeah, and breathe. Oh yeah. Breathe. (sighs) You know, you can't hold on to tension Mm. with the, with the exhale. Mm. There was something. Sorry, say again delivers through you're delivering the tension through your body and out the relationship with the exhale like and often we 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 halt an exhale before we've actually fully exhaled because we don't really want to let go and then so i sometimes say in a class an exhale and then exhale and it's like oh yeah there is a bit more and it goes off to that kind of wispy end and inhale only if i'm guiding them through breath I was on a mental health awareness um, course for, um, I was interpreting it and they were, it was like mental health first aid training in a workplace. And they were saying that we have, um, you know, this thing of telling people take a deep breath, but actually 
the best thing you can say to somebody is exhale because yeah. you should breathe out before you take a deep breath in. Absolutely. Like, let your breath go because you tell let somebody to take a, breath, they're, take a deep breath, they're already up here holding it. They're in the and they're up here. Breath. Yeah. It's like, I'm a cold water swimmer and that's the first thing that we learn, you know, as you get in, exhale. Yeah. Relief. Well, they do that when you're getting an injection for something, don't they? Like yeah. medicine or the like... will happen. It'll look after itself. Yeah. The exhale and release. You're okay. You're calming. You're letting go. And the inhale comes. Yeah. And, and yeah, and you get to the end of the exhale and just even just a tiny bit more, let it, letting it out a little bit more and then see what it does to the inhale. Yeah. Um, just one final question. Well, it might turn to more questions, but um, when I was doing some um, reading up about other yogi, um, yogic people, yoga teachers, and um, their own um, stories about where they've come from in addiction, a yoga teacher um, talked about her connection in that she felt there was a correlation in being connected through addiction and through yoga because when she was um taking drugs and alcohol she said that she was reaching that different state but she was being connected to something she was mm -hmm. she felt like she was part of something that wasn't her and i just wanted to ask i think it's probably a massive question to try and be like oh what do you think about that but in terms of like what you're reaching for in not just yoga asana but in the yoga path of life do you think that it is about do you think in a sort of, it, it kind of makes sense that people turn to drugs and alcohol because that's why people turn to the yoga path as well, because they want to connect to something mm -hmm. that's, not, that's not about the personality, that's not about the me, myself and I. Not about the ego. Connection for me is the antidote to addiction. So do you think addiction is very separate? I think addiction is um, an abandonment of self, I think, um, yes, I think there's an isolation. I think it's a strive to connect. I think recovery is, you know, certainly in the 12 steps, large, largely recovery is based upon your connection to your fellows, which is why it's called a fellowship. Your connection to your past and your present and how you'd like your future, but ultimately a connection to your higher power. Now, that is not a religious um, God, it can be, God can be an acronym for group of drunks, it can be, but it's a looking for connection because the isolated state of feeling abandoned or rejected or hurt or traumatized or abused, whatever it is, that has potentially led you into addiction and then recovery, is you're looking to connect. The connection is essential to keep us alive, you know. In that, you know, it's that kind of Romanian baby orphanage thing that the the babies that were cuddled by the nurses are the ones that survived and the babies that weren't, they just died because we die without connection. And, it, and, and in part, the soul dies. And it's a soul sickness addiction. So we're looking to connect. And, you know, your higher power, one's higher power, like we say, namaste, you know, the divine within bows, you know, to the divine in you, like my divine within bows to your divine within other tra other translations are available this is hotly <laughs> hotly, hotly debated um <laughs> topic That's what I say <laughs> well um, chris, chris wallace says that it's one translation of it it doesn't necessarily mean it's not the translation of it anyway go on 
so the translation that I, you know, when I say it, that's where I'm the part that I'm coming from. That's so, your intention. Yeah. Like, that's, yeah. So it's like the, the divine within, but also the divine that, that's out there that for me manifests in nature. You know, I have nothing to do with the sun rising and falling. And even if I wanted to have anything to do with it, I couldn't. It would hmm. still happen like me. So they're the sort of, um, th that's another connection. It's a connection to the fact that I'm a tiny microscopic part of a really massive embroidered delicious world you know with its troubles and its and its triumphs and, and that's connecting you know that it's not all about me that I don't have to do this all on my own that I'm not a god of my own description you know and connecting with somebody else that may be struggling or somebody else that you may need their advice from, you know, just learning how to be in relationship with. And the, the way that yoga is that is, is relationship with self. You know, you're coming into a relationship with your physicality, with your breath, with your movement, with your edges, with your, with a responsibility to self, with self care. It's a hugely connected way, albeit you're on your own, often on the mat. It's a hugely connected practice. And for me, without connection, I wouldn't be sober. Mm. That's my, my experience of my recovery. That's really beautiful, though. Um, I think that's a really great place to leave it. I just love that without, without that connection, um, you wouldn't be sober. That's quite powerful. And um, thanks for being so honest and sharing something which is so personal. Um, it's really really appreciated by me and the people that will hear this podcast um so thanks a lot for, for joining me should we um end in the traditional way of, of uh doing an om I'll, would you like to leave <sighs> okay so take a deep inhale Namaste, beautiful Sophie. Namaste, beautiful Zoe.